Beloveds, welcome back to The Word is Resistance, the podcast where we're exploring what our Christian sacred texts have to teach us about living, surviving, even thriving in the context of empire, tyranny, violence, and repression, the times in which we are living today. What do our sacred stories have to teach us as white folks about our role in resistance, in showing up, and in liberation? We are building up a new world. This live recording of Dr. Vincent Harding's song for the Freedom Movement is of a multiracial group of activists and musicians in Denver, Colorado, who come together occasionally for movement choir practice to bring singing back into direct actions and other movement spaces. This particular choir practice is from uh, December 2014, being led by Minister Daryl J. Walker. We are deeply grateful to the Freeney Harding family for letting us use the song for this podcast. I'm Reverend Ann Dunlap, back with you again today. I'm a UCC pastor, just recently moved to the place currently called Buffalo, New York, here in the homelands of the Haudenosaunee peoples. I'm the faith coordinator for Showing Up for Racial Justice, or SURGE, nationally, and this podcast is a project of SURGE Faith and SURGE Action, and is particularly designed for white people, white people talking to other white people about race and white supremacy. We believe white people like us, like me, have a responsibility to commit ourselves to resisting white supremacy, to speaking up and showing up and disrupting white supremacy where we find it, including in our own Christian tradition. We'd love to hear from you, and especially from folks of color, about how we're doing. The word is resistance. It's been a very warm day here in Buffalo, and so our windows are flung open, and you may hear some street revelry in the background today as I'm recording. So let's all take a few breaths together, because I'm just going to jump right into things. This is a week in electionary where every single text selection is rich with possibility. There's Elijah fleeing for his life into the wilderness and being tended to by angels, allowed to rest, be nourished, and regain a sense of safety before he's called back out again by the divine. There's one of my favorite Psalms, Psalm 42, that starts off so lyrically, as a deer longs for flowing streams, so my soul longs for you, O God. And then it goes on to wonder for the rest of the psalm and into the next and the one after that, where the hell this God is while we're suffering oppression. There's a fascinating bit of Isaiah in which God speaks. I said, here I am, here I am to a nation that did not call on my name. Yeah, a lot could be done with that. And we also have that famous bit of Galatians. There is no longer Jew nor Greek, etc., in which Paul smashes our ideas about binaries. So much good stuff. We could do a month's worth of podcasts just on this week's text alone. But today, I want to focus on the story from Luke. This is most often called the story of the Gerasene demoniac, and it's told first in Mark, then in Matthew, who places it in Gadara instead of Gesara, and then here in Luke 8. Here's Luke's version. Then Jesus and his disciples arrived at the country of the Gerasenes, which is opposite Galilee. As he stepped out on land, a man of the city who had demons met him. 
For a long time, he had worn no clothes, and he did not live in a house, but in the tombs. When he saw Jesus, he fell down before him and shouted at the top of his voice, What have you to do with me, Jesus, Son of the Most High God? I beg you, do not torment me. For Jesus had commanded the unclean spirit to come out of the man. For many times it had seized him. He was kept under guard and bound with chains and shackles, but he would break the bonds and be driven by the demon into the wilds. Jesus then asked him, What is your name? He said, Legion, for many demons had entered him. They begged him not to order them to go back into the abyss. Now there on the hillside, a large herd of swine was feeding, and the demons begged Jesus to let them enter these. So he gave them permission. Then the demons came out of the man and entered the swine, and the herd rushed down the steep bank into the lake and was drowned. When the swineherds saw what had happened, they ran off and told it in the city and in the country. Then the people came out to see what had happened, and when they came to Jesus, they found the man from whom the demons had gone sitting at the feet of Jesus, clothed and in his right mind. And they were afraid. Those who had seen it told them how the one who had been possessed by demons had been healed. Then all the people of the surrounding country of the Gerasenes asked Jesus to leave them, for they were seized with great fear. So he got into the boat and returned. The man from whom the demons had gone begged that he might be with him. But Jesus sent him away, saying, Return to your home and declare how much God has done for you. So he went away, proclaiming throughout the city how much Jesus had done for him. people came to see what had happened, and when they came to Jesus, they found the man from whom the demons had gone, sitting at the feet of Jesus, clothed and in his right mind, and they were afraid. This is where I want to end up today, this brief sentence, and they were afraid. But first, let's talk a bit about what's happening in this story, this place Jesus has traveled to this man possessed by legion, this legion sent into a herd of pigs and drowned. Who or what is this legion, anyway? Straight up, we know a legion is a Roman military formation, about 5,000 troops in the Roman army. Legions were occupying forces throughout the Roman Empire. Obviously, this man is not possessed by a literal 5,000 troops, so what does Luke mean to give the demons the name legion? Is it simply a matter that, as the text says, many demons entered him, and so legion is as good a descriptor as any of many, leading to a nice story about a healing with no other implications at all? Perhaps. 
Certainly this story is often interpreted that way. But there's more going on here when we start looking at the political context and other language in the story that references Rome's military that all gets flattened out in translation 20 centuries later. Jesus has traveled across the Sea of Galilee, across the boundary that is the Jordan River into the Decapolis. He is no longer in Herod-controlled Judea, no longer in territory comprised mostly of his fellow Jews. The Decapolis was a collection of 10 cities under the Roman province of Syria, a set of Roman outposts along the eastern edge of the empire. Unlike Judea, the cities of the Decapolis had some political autonomy and the protection of Rome, i.e. protection via the Roman military. They were mostly Roman and Syrian, with small communities of Jews. Roman military veterans were given land in the, De in the Decapolis, and commerce with other areas of the empire was strong, as well as worship of the Roman emperor as God, which undergirded the theology of the empire. Compared to Judea, the Decapolis was more wealthy, more autonomous, and definitely more protected by Rome. On their coins, the cities of the Decapolis sometimes marked themselves free. There is a reason Luke uses opposite when he describes the location of Gerasa. So let's talk about this legion. Being the eastern edge of the empire, the Roman military was present to control their border. Theologian and biblical scholar Ched Myers points out that at least four Roman legions were posted in this area to control the border, and that Roman propaganda demonstrated the violence with which those borders were controlled. The more things change. Of course, Roman legions were well known to Jewish people living under a much different kind of occupation in Judea. As Myers notes, the 10th legion, called the 10th Fratensis, was a constant presence and responsible for crushing the Jewish revolt of 6 CE, led by the Syrian governor Quirinius, whose name is familiar to us from Luke's nativity story. During Rome's war against Judea from 67 CE to around 72, the 10th Fratensis Legion was present to crush Jewish resistance and participated in the destruction of Jerusalem in 70 CE. The 10th Fratensis took over Jerusalem and stayed in Judea for the next century and a half. One more point about legions. Also during the Roman Jewish War, Vespasian commanded the Roman legions, including the 10th Fratensis in Judea, and also legions in the Decapolis, where they slaughtered Jews who lived there as well as Jews who had fled east to escape the war, including in Gadara, where Matthew sets his version of this story. I'm guessing many of the non-Jewish inhabitants of the Decapolis were happy to have their safety protected by the Roman legions from such a rebellious threat, to have law and order protected by legion. They were free, after all. So now a word or two about pigs. Probably you know that Jews consider and considered pigs to be a ritually unclean animal, not to be eaten and not to be touched. So a favorite food of legion troops? Pigs. Also, the Greek word translated in the NRSV as herd, as in a herd of pigs, 
was in that time slang for um, legion troops or recruits. And finally, guess the symbol of the 10th Fratensis Legion. Yep, that's right, it was a pig. And their symbol was found in many places, including on what was left of Jerusalem's buildings after the 10th Legions destroyed them and then occupied the city. Imagine what is left of your holy sites, your homes and gathering places, being defaced with the occupier's symbol, which is also something anathema to you. So all of these layers of meaning, along with other military verbs like Jesus giving permission to the pigs and the pigs rushing into the sea, should be telling us this is a very charged story. There is more going on here than simply a man possessed of many demons being healed. If that were all this story is, why would the storytellers, Mark, Matthew, and Luke, use the word legion when they could have just used some form of multi, also Latin, for many? Instead, they use a word that had to provoke terror and trauma for the audience as a result of their experiencing this same imperial violence. Let's remember, Jesus lived his life and embodied his ministry during and in the aftermath of the 10th Fratensis Legion's crushing of the Jewish revolt of 6 CE. A generation later, the Gospel of Mark is being written during the Roman Jewish War, that is, while the 10th Fratensis and other legions are a violent, occupying, and ultimately reconquering force. A generation after that, Luke's Gospel is being written in the aftermath of that destruction a holy city destroyed, and a people scattered or enslaved. I don't think we take seriously enough the utter devastation of Roman occupation and conquest that is happening during Jesus' life and how that is reflected in the stories his community is trying to pull together to make meaning of his execution by Rome when Rome's demons reign all around them. The name of the demons is Legion, and that matters. Then people came out to see what had happened. And when they came to Jesus, they found the man from whom the demons had gone, sitting at the feet of Jesus, clothed and in his right mind. And they were afraid. I'm getting to that bit, I promise. But let's review this story now that we have the full weight of the pig-loving legions out in the open. Jesus arrives in the Decapolis, the opposite of Galilee, Yes, certainly occupied by Rome, but enjoying a much more comfortable arrangement than Judea. The man bearing legion arrives and begs Jesus not to torment him. Note that this has been his experience as he dealt, has dealt with his suffering. He's kept under guard, a verb Luke uses later to describe Roman imprisonment. He's shackled, bound, and yet still he tries to break free. He still tries to break free from his suffering caused by legion. Ched Myers says this, that the political body of this man, possessed by destructive demons, mirrored the body politic 
of militarily occupied Palestine. In other words, the suffering of the man represents the suffering of the Jewish people under Roman oppression. And I think that's definitely a way to read this story. However, let's remember the opposite Galilee context of this story. To me, it seems just as likely that the man suffering from legion is a Gentile, a Syrian, a Decapolite? I think I made that word up, but what I mean is, what if he's a Decapolis living non-Jew who is suffering from legion? If this is possible, then what we are witnessing here is Jesus liberating someone from the suffering of legion, someone who lives in a region with a much more comfortable imperial arrangement someone potentially enjoying the benefits of Roman protection, yet still, still trying to break free from legion. And his neighbors don't want him to. They don't try to heal him of his suffering. Instead, they guard him, shackle him, bind him, do whatever they can to keep him from being free. And yet he still breaks free, hiding in perhaps the only safe places he can find, in the wilderness and among the tombs. His neighbors don't want him to be free. Please don't torment me, he begs Jesus. So Jesus orders Legion into the pig recruits and they charge off as if into battle, only to drown in the sea. And yes, we should definitely be experiencing echoes of Pharaoh's army drowning in the sea here, adding layers onto this liberation perhaps as a way to remind Jesus' communities suffering under Roman oppression that armies, that legions, that empires do eventually destroy themselves. But I want to keep thinking about this man. And what if he's a Decapolite? What if this story is about someone who recognizes they are caught in the middle of Roman imperial power plays, enjoying benefits like peace, law and order, economic stability, bought through violence perpetrated against others and decides they don't want to be a part of that anymore? What if the Decapolite is someone who wants to break free from how legion is embedded inside them, how the logics, the beliefs and practices, the policies and ideologies that help keep the empire running, that keep the pigs fed? What if this is a story about how the Decapolite with Roman privilege Get set free. Then people came out to see what had happened. And when they came to Jesus, they found the man from whom Legion had gone, sitting at the feet of Jesus, clothed and in his right mind. And they were afraid. And they were afraid. This story should be good news for the other Decapolites. Because a key piece here is that being possessed by Legion causes suffering whether you're a Jew or a Decapolite. It is sh surely different suffering. It is surely most definitely different suffering. 
But if we read this story of the man possessed by legion as someone who has Roman privilege, it's clear the story is telling us there is a cost for that privilege. There is harm to the soul, to one's well-being. There is something to get free from. All the things that help keep the empire running, that keep the pigs fed. And yet the other Decapolites are afraid. They think they're free, remember? It says so right on their coins. And yet they cannot bear to see their neighbor free from legion. They are so unsettled by witnessing liberation that they ask Jesus, the liberator, to leave. And I get it, on the one hand, we know what happens when people who benefit from Rome's protection try to defect. Rome turns on them too. The Decapolites aren't ignorant. They know this. They've witnessed it. They know the power and threat of Legion. They know what happens when Legion is challenged. So yeah, of course they're afraid. But I also wonder if their fear is in part because they can't imagine freedom beyond the structure they live in. A freedom not rooted in Legion. A freedom not rooted in shutting down a part of your heart to gain the protection of Rome. A freedom not rooted in stability whose foundation is genocide? Maybe, also, in the liberated man's now calm face, they suddenly recognize the lie they have been sold about the Pax Romana, about the benefits of letting legion burrow inside your soul, and they panic. Maybe it's all of these things that cause them to push the possibility of liberation far across the sea. Chad Meyer says it this way, that those who are codependent upon a dominant system, no matter how dysfunctional or dehumanizing, will usually resist change. Personal or political, liberation has a cost, which usually the majority is unwilling to risk. And yet, it seems to me that what this story is telling us, among other things, is that there must be risk that it is not enough for full true liberation, for the full dismantling of Rome's empire, if only those most oppressed are fighting for freedom. What this story is telling us is that those in Rome's comfort zone, those autonomous enough to feel free, also have liberating work to do because they aren't actually free. This story of the Decapolite man liberated from legion should be good news. Good news to every Decapolite possessed by legion. Because they all are, you know? That's what it means to be codependent on a system. That's what it means to choose your fear over collective freedom. Some part of legion lives inside you, keeping you from being truly, truly free. This story should be good news. This story should be good news for us. All of us white folk, especially those of us who are middle or upper class, we white folks who find ourselves in the middle of U.S. imperial power plays, enjoying benefits, peace, law and order, some kind of economic stability, bought through violence perpetrated against others, co-opted and codependent upon a dominant system, autonomous enough to feel free, but who very often panic in the face of actual freedom, and demand the liberator leave. 
Most of our sacred scripture is a constant and sometimes contentious conversation between very oppressed folks talking to each other about how to survive, even possibly thrive, in the face of oppression. Which means most of that conversation is not with or about the folks who are analogous in those times to us white folks in these times. So when a story like this does happen, we would do well to pay attention. This story of the Decapolite getting free from Legion is good news for us. It tells us we can get free from the Legion that lives inside of us. We can get free from the lies the U.S. Empire tells us, those of us in the Empire's comfort zone, who keep perpetuating the logics, the beliefs and practices, the policies and ideologies that help keep the Empire running, that keep the pigs fed. We have something to get free from. For me, part of it is getting free from capitalism's deathly insistence that my only worth is what I can produce. It's getting free from the erasure of who my ancestors were and how they related to the earth and each other before they became white. It's getting free from the reliance on systems of state violence like policing that try to convince me that police, that peace relies on violence and that communities can't care for and protect themselves. That's some of it for me. We white folk have something to get free from. And let's be real. All of us respond sometimes, or often, or always, like the Decapolites in this story. We choose our fear over collective liberation, our co-opted comfort over true freedom rooted in justice and care and accountability and free from violence and fear. We're asked to imagine a world without policing and we balk. We're asked to imagine a world without borders and we balk. We're asked to imagine a world without prisons and we balk. We're asked to imagine reparations as a start to deep healing towards collective liberation and we balk. We balk, we are afraid to risk and we demand the liberator cross back over the sea. But the liberated Decapolite He's still right here reminding us that there must be risk. That it is not enough for true, full liberation, for the full dismantling of the U.S. empire, if only those most oppressed are fighting for freedom. What this story is telling us is that those of us in the U.S. empire's comfort zone, those of us autonomous enough to feel free, also have liberating work to do because we aren't actually free. It's interesting to me that Jesus doesn't challenge the people's fear. He just gets back in his boat and goes opposite Decapolis. But first, before he goes, the liberated man begs to go with him. I bet he knows life in the Decapolis just got harder for him. And he does what so many of us do when we first wake up to the reality of empire. We want to go help the most oppressed and leave our own unwoke people behind. But Jesus gives him a charge to go and tell the rest of his people. To go and tell the rest of his people. You have to get your own people. We 
have to get our own people alongside and being led by those most impacted by Legion. We have to get our own people. And yes, it will cost us our comfort. And that right there is good news. Let's get free, y'all. Let's banish Legion right into the abyss. Amen. Today, as I'm writing and recording this, is Juneteenth, the day celebrated when news of the Emancipation Proclamation finally reached still enslaved black folks in Galveston, Texas, in June of 1865, two and a half years after Lincoln issued it, and two months after the Civil War actually ended. Funny how a country that supposedly was founded in and values freedom so dearly had such a hard time actually getting the news to people who were not free. I'm hoping all the revelry in our neighborhood tonight is Juneteenth celebrations. At any rate, for your action today, I want to share a couple of posts from Black women that I read today. I will put links to them in the transcript so you can read them for yourself as part of the practice, but for now, I just want you to take them in. Take in their words and feel in your body and spirit where and when discomfort shows up, where and when legion shows up to push the liberator back. Don't judge it, just notice it. That discomfort shows us where the limits of our imagination are, where they've been co-opted by legion's imperial logic. Here's Patrice Cullors. True freedom means that human beings are not illegal, that no human being live in a cage. Juneteenth is supposed to be about freedom, but we all know black people aren't free. It's going to take all of us to demand the abolition of police and prison state. All of these things remind us why reparations is absolutely critical to repair harm and to provide a semblance of equity for black people the world over. Happy Juneteenth. And here's Ijeoma Oluo. The story of Juneteenth isn't about how long it took us to find out we were free, but that white America still has refused to. New traumas will continue to compound old. White America will continue to hide from its own reflection, will continue to call us what it sees in itself until white America pays reparations to descendants of slaves, until it tears down the institutions that can only run off of our blood and our labor, until it decides that it can be something not defined by its power over us. Until then, Juneteenth will not be a story of the past. It will be a story of always. Where did Legion show up for you? Was it abolition? Was it reparations? Whatever it was, let's go there. Let's learn more. 
Let's talk to our people. Let's stretch our imaginations. And of course, let's figure out how to take action, to take risk, to do our part in getting us all free. Thanks as always for joining me from wherever you are on this good earth. Let us know how your action goes. We'd love to hear from you by commenting on our SoundCloud or Facebook pages. You can share your story with us via our listener survey at bit.ly slash twir100survey. That's bit.ly slash twir100survey. Next week, John Bergen will be back with the resistance word for us for June 30th. You can find out more about Surge at showingupforracialjustice.org, and our podcast lives at SoundCloud. Search on The Word is Resistance. You can interact with us there, too, if you have questions or need help with action ideas. And give us a like or rate us on iTunes, Stitcher, or wherever you listen to our podcast. Transcripts are available on our website, which include references, resources, and action links. And finally, a huge thanks, as always, to our sound editor this week, Maxwell Pearl. Blessings to you in all that you do to resist injustice and in all that you do to build up a new world. Love and liberation, beloveds. Love and liberation. Until next time, I'm Reverend Ann Dunlap. Rise, shine.